This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 793 with Sabrina Justison. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 793. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community, so be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Hey mamas, we have a super special episode today, but I do want to give you a bit of a content warning. We do talk about murder, we talk about incarceration, and if you are not in the right space to hear that, listen to that, dig into that content today, this might be an episode you want to listen to another time. Or if you have little ears around you, again, might be an episode for another time. With all that, let me introduce you to our very special guest. Sabrina Justison is a curriculum developer, speaker, and writer, wife to Fred, and mom or stepmom to seven grown kids, plus grandmother to six. She's also the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Prison Care. One of her grown children, Jay, is mentally ill and in prison, serving a very long sentence for murder. Sabrina is an advocate for people like Jay who are incarcerated, in particular those living with mental illness. In 2018, catastrophe shattered the life that should have been guaranteed for a mom who had loved her son, read him all the quote unquote right books, raised him in a collaborative community, encouraged his individuality, and believed in him when he spread his wings as an adult. He ended up living a life and is living a life that she never could have seen coming. And he is incarcerated for a long time, living out his sentence for murder. And as Sabrina began to 
reconnect with her son in this new phase of building a relationship with him, she began to get involved and invested in terms of what happens inside the prison system. And she pretty quickly began to see each prison as a neighborhood, but an uneasy neighborhood uh, made up of residents, correctional officers, staff and administration, all living in really close proximity to one another and all facing many common challenges. Where we normally think of an us versus them environment in the prison system, we know that that actually compromises the physical and mental health of all who live there. And if we can create a place where there is more mutual respect, healthy rapport and recognition of shared humanity, then there can be a more positive culture and everyone in the system can thrive more. The people who are working there, the people who are living there. The need for prison reform is undeniable for sure. But while we wait for big reform to happen, no matter what our politics are, we can offer tangible support to the people inside the fence simply because they are in need and they matter. Sabrina also has a really unique view. I don't know if it's a unique view, but she also has a a strong message on not only the mental health needs of prison residents, but also the correctional staff. So on average, three correction officers die each day in the U.S. by suicide. And incarcerated individuals are more than twice as likely to be significantly mentally ill than those outside of prisons. So we know that our correction officers and our incarcerated friends and family members and those who are, you know, our community members are all really, really struggling. The data is very, very clear. And Sabrina really wants to do something about that. So listen in to hear Sabrina share what it has been like to be the mother of a child who is serving a very long prison sentence for murder how she took her background in psychology and the arts to found her nonprofit, Prison Care, how she started to pick up the pieces and move forward after her son was incarcerated, the critical lack of mental health support in prisons and jails, how we as a society have completely dehumanized prisoners and created a system that is harmful, not just to the prisoners, but also to all of society, the surprising parallels and similarities between the lives of prisoners and correction officers in the prison system, and what Prison Care does to help others outside the prison system adopt a prison. I know you are going to learn so much in this conversation. A bunch of your biases around incarceration are probably going to be completely shattered. And that's probably a good thing. So listen in, buckle up. I'm so grateful for Sabrina for having the courage to come forward and share, but also having the tenacity to be a change maker, a culture shifter, a culture shaper. And I'm so, so honored that she came here to speak today and be a contributor to the podcast and also to this really, really important conversation. So please join me in welcoming Sabrina Justison to the Shameless Mom Academy. Sabrina, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so honored to have you here today. I am so delighted to be here today. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So we have to give a little shout out to Jessica Sonarski who introduced us and we both acknowledged and hopefully Jessica will listen to this because we both acknowledge that anything that Jessica suggests to either of us, we, it's like, take it all at face value. Like, yes, of course I'm going to do anything she recommends because she is so brilliant, so talented, so wise. And so like on point, she just knows things that are going to connect with me at the right moment in time. Oh, yes. Jess is 
Awesome. Yes. JessicaSinarski.com. Do it. Go there. <laughs> Learn yes, more. Yes. And she's been on the show. I think she's been on the show three times and she came in to talk. To, I had her come speak as a guest at my son's school to talk about uh, uh, mental health. After about COVID. Brave so, brains and, yeah. Yes. About oh, brave brains. And yeah. So she reached out about us getting to know each other and have this conversation about some of your life experience. And as soon as she reached out, I mean, as soon as I saw an email that was like, Hey, I have an intro for you. I was like, whatever she wants, I'm in. <laughs> but as I started reading through your story and the story of you and your son and the work that you're doing with people who are incarcerated, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is a conversation that has been in my mind that like, I want to be able to help other people and culturally shift the narrative and like start to mm. normalize and humanize people who either have been incarcerated, who have family members who are incarcerated, who have neighbors or like all of these things, we're all still people and we all still have worth. And the work that you're doing is really, really driving that home and humanizing so many experiences of those who have been imprisoned and also shedding so much light on what it looks like to be in that situation. So with all that, let's go ahead and dig in. Can you tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what you're most excited about right now? Oh boy. So uh, the dynamics of my life are that I have many flaming bowling pins that I'm trying to juggle. And I'm in a mm. season of trying to figure out, I have a lot of separate strands. I, um, My husband is retired. So we live in two states. So we have a, a home in Florida and a home in Maryland. So there's a lot of travel back and forth. We also rent the property sometimes. So I'm a property manager. I'm still a curriculum publisher. I have aging parents. I have an aging aunt that I became power of attorney for, but she's halfway across the country. So I feel like I live a lot of my life trying to figure out, wait, what am I supposed to do today? And who am I supposed to be today? Oh. And so, yeah, so that's what life is feeling like. But what I'm excited about, I'm excited about vision casting because that's the sweet spot in my life. When I get to talk with people in whichever hat I'm wearing or whatever in a moment, when I get to encourage people to hope and to look forward to something, to look at themselves carefully and say, I can actually make changes in my life. I have choices that I can make. And that kind of stuff, that is so life-giving to me. And I'm getting the chance to mm -hmm. do a lot of that then in my professional life too. So vision casting is what's got me jazzed these days. Oh my goodness. I love that so much. First of all, I have to acknowledge how relatable it is. And I know for many of our listeners, like the, what hat am I wearing today? Yes. Or the, what hat am I wearing in any given hour or 10 yeah. minutes? <laughs> very, I, I, this week, especially very much relate to that. So I appreciate <laughs> that. I love what you said about vision casting and bringing hope. And you are bringing that to a population of people who I would imagine more than most populations and in a more intense way might suffer or not suffer, um, struggle to find hope. And yeah. so can you talk a little bit about what led to the work that you're doing today to whatever level you feel comfortable? It involves your son and right. the journey that he has been on and as well as the work that you two have done in your relationship. So it does involve him. And fortunately he has chosen to be open book. And so we have chosen to try to be really transparent with our story because I am a mom who went through what a lot of parents would think of as like the worst outcome imaginable um, because I have a son who is serving a very long prison sentence for murdering someone. And so I have a kid who actually took another person's life. And you know, that's not really anything any of us think of when we're changing our baby's diapers. And when we're helping them learn how to walk, we don't look at them and think someday you're going to grow up to kill someone, you know, it, it's, it's so unimaginable. But 
that's what put me in the position to start prison care and to do the things that we're doing with that. So like that tragedy, that moment in time of catastrophe is officially what led me to do this. But the weird thing, Sarah, is that everything I had done up until that point has also led me to do the work I'm doing today. I was a teenager and I was just interested in people who were suffering with mental illness. And I read all kinds of biographies and autobiographies. And I volunteered at the state psych hospital with the arts therapist there. And and I don't know why I was so interested, but I was. And then I ended up homeschooling. And so I learned things about teaching and I learned things about developing curriculum and how people learn. And I was a research junkie myself. And then I ended, I love the arts. I love music and drama. And I used to, to do drama camps every summer and stuff for teenagers. And I taught voice lessons for years. And I saw the power of music and drama in helping people deal with personal stuff, even when we weren't trying to, you know, and you would just see things like getting healed and strengthened and whatever. So all of those pieces came together. And then I became an entrepreneur in my early forties and with some friends started a, a curriculum publishing business online. So actually all of those things have now shown up somehow in prison care. And it's, I don't know why, but it's reassuring to me that the weird, completely separate threads of my life all are helping now with something that I feel so very passionately is needed. I'm relating to the parts of your story of always having this interest in learning and being supportive of people who are often looked at differently by society or maybe even completely overlooked by society. Mm -hmm. I have talked about this before on the podcast, but I actually worked in a psychiatric hospital in my first career worked with kids and my like favorite hobby during that time was to go to Barnes and Nobles on like a Wednesday night and just sit and read books in the psychology department or in the psychology section. And my roommate (laughs) was like, yes, I'm going to go to happy hour, but like have fun at your Barnes and Noble thing. (laughs) So random. So I, I relate to like this, like being just intensely curious and wanting to learn more in order to do something with what you're learning. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to go through the process of becoming a parent of a child who had taken a life and how do you navigate that territory before you started to dig into the work that you are in now? So if we're talking about the really early days after the news broke, we had been estranged for 13 months. I had no idea where he was. He began manifesting symptoms of mental illness, late teens, early twenties, which is when it so often starts to manifest in people. And through a whole series of just bizarre things over a couple of years. He and his wife, who was also very troubled, um, they literally disappeared. And we tried to work with police to find them. And we would get glimmers. Occasionally, there would be weird things on social media. And we would think maybe it was a... But for 13 months, essentially, we had no idea where he was and what was going on. And five o'clock one morning, his sister, my daughter, woke up just with the sense that she needed to Google his name. And she did. Mm. And he had been arrested the night before. So yeah, it was pretty out of nowhere. Such odd inclination. Yeah. None of us know what to do with that. (laughs) I, I don't know. In the early days, we Googled him a lot because we were trying to find him. Right. But after a year, you're not, you can't do that. You can't live like that, holding your breath and looking for one. I, I'm a mom or stepmom to seven kids. So we have Mm. a lot of people you know, and I couldn't let my entire life be wrapped up in trying to find him if he didn't want to be found. So we weren't Googling him all the time, but that morning she just knew she had to. And she did. And he had been arrested the night before he and his wife. So at the very beginning, honestly, I mean, I just 
didn't do anything. I was so completely stunned and paralyzed by it. And within the first day or so, I started trying to quit things because I had this sense like, I want to disassociate myself from every good group of people in my life so that they don't catch something from this. You know, I don't want Mm. this to hurt the reputation of, I was directing a production of a musical at a, a local small private school. And I like met with the board that day and resigned as director because I said, I don't, wow. this is going to come out in the news and I don't want it to be associated with your school. So I, I went around, you know, calling people and trying to like get them to not be friends with me anymore because I didn't want them to catch something. You know, it was this horrible yeah. sense of contagion and very little coping was going on. I did work jigsaw puzzles. There was something weirdly therapeutic about I can physically put these pieces together, even if I can't put the pieces of my life together, because it doesn't make any sense. You know, mm-hmm. I binge watched Call the Midwife, but I don't know that that was particularly helpful. But that was like the one thing that I could watch for some reason was Call the Midwife. And it wasn't terribly long. I had friends who just took care of me and just refused to let me I was going to say what it sounds like you were like trying to anticipate people's responses, which is so relatable because like I can't that fear must just be like the world is, you know, like now we're going to be the outcasts and who's going to want to be associated with us. And so can you talk about like when you step outside of that fear, what actually happened? What were people's responses? It was the craziest thing. Everybody just came around me. I have yet we're we're five and a half years down this road. I have yet to encounter a person who has given me the cold shoulder, who has stepped back, Mm -hmm. who has not wanted to meet me because not wanted to get to know me because they've heard my story. You know, it's the opposite. It's like people were drawn to walk through it with me. And I Mm -hmm. don't know what to attribute that to except the power of honest relationships. I have been blessed to have incredible people in my life for decades. And I've worked with a whole lot of people and there is something very special about people who look at me and see me as a person and who have known me for a long time and know lots of my imperfections, but who say, you did not do this. This is not a definition of you. This is something you are going through. This is something that happened in your life, but we're going to walk through it with you because you're still you. And so I kind of wanted my identity, I think, to become just this awful thing. I felt like I had to, I felt like that was the least I could do in the face of someone Mm. who lost their life, you know? But I had these friends who said, no, we know you, we know you. And this is not the definition of who you are. This is not the sum total. And we're going to walk through this with you. And you're still going to be Sabrina. It's just going to be hard, but you're not doing it alone. And that was an incredible gift. I didn't get kicked out of anything. So weird. (laughs) I really, truly thought I would. And I got kicked out of nothing. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily, 
It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. This episode is supported by Mysteries About True Histories, a podcast for your kiddos. So from the creators of the hit podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. This podcast is perfect for ages six and up and new episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. I love a show where as a parent, you're like, hey, let's listen or watch this or whatever. And your kids are thinking they're like getting extra device time or what have you. And you're like, they're learning right now. So it feels like such a big win. So I want you to go check out Mysteries About True Histories wherever you listen to podcasts. You can tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast. So go check out Mysteries About True Histories to listen in and have some fun with your kid while they learn today. It's so interesting. Before we hit record, I was sharing that when we hear about horrible things in the news, I often think about, and young people, especially perpetrating violent crimes, I always think about that kid's mom. Like, what's that kid's mom doing today? And I know that we, you know, of course, we're going to think of the victims, of course, and that's what the media coverage is around. And that's who we definitely want to center. But I always am curious about who, like this kid's mom, this mom now is, there's so much to carry with that. And I think that it's so fascinating that people surrounded you the way that they did. And I think that that's such a beautiful thing. And I think that the more we can talk about these kinds of stories and what it means to be human in these moments, it doesn't make it okay that the thing happened. No, But to your point, it's not a reflection of your worth or your value or necessarily anything that you did right or wrong. But of course, like as a mom, you want to internalize that. And then to have right. your community wrap their arms around you and say, like, we see you and we we see the complete you in this situation. Yeah. And we can hold space for that whole spectrum of humanity within you. Like that's a significant, significant thing. And I think that when we are only reading news articles and headlines, we mm. just lose all of that. It's context. I mean, everything you're talking about is context. And it's a huge piece of prison care. We're going to get into that later. But the fact that a human being does something in a single moment in time is not something we are ever going to be able to make sense of or understand. They have an entire context around them. Mm -hmm. It's not an excuse. 
But context right. is vitally important for us to make sense of it, even if we're going to make sense of it and come to the conclusion that this person has no place in my life, that I am choosing mm-hmm. to do whatever with that information. But you can't begin to understand if you have no context. And what we get on the news yeah. typically has zero context. It's just this right. isolated right. moment in time, you know? So, yeah. And I, I think that the human brain, and it's like, <laughs> most simple way we want to compartmentalize, right? We want to be like good and bad. So when you look at, when you look at a situation, you're like, okay, this like 20 year old kid went into the store and like did this, you know, perpetrated a violent crime and these people were hurt. You're like, okay, hurt people. Good person who actually hurt people bad. And then you're like, those are the boxes that keeps it really clean and simple in the human brain. And then when you start to look at well, what were the things leading up to all of that? Then right. it's like, okay, wait, now like my brain has to work way harder. <laughs> right. Like, it the does. Boxes, like there's actually not walls around the boxes. Like yeah. it's a big open container and like we're all yeah. navigating. And that's way more complex. And I think that that piece becomes much more challenging. And so it's like our brains want to be lazy and just be like, yes. this goes here, that yes. goes there. Well, our brains um, want to be and lazy think- and our identities want to be safe. And the moment that we let mm, things get gray, yeah. the moment that we recognize some of the context that maybe looks a little bit like certain things in our lives, then we're like, wait, that yeah. could be me. No, it yeah. could not. It absolutely could not accept Jiminy Crickets. Maybe it could, you know? And that's, yeah. I think that's part of the reason that people have been so drawn to our story is I don't fit any of the stereotypes that people would like to conveniently have in their minds about the mother mm-hmm. of someone who goes, goes on to take a life. It doesn't yeah. make sense. And yeah. so it normalizes it for people, but that's terrifying too. Once it's normalized, yeah. then there's the sense of, oh, maybe I actually am not the master of everything in the universe. Like I would like to pretend <laughs> like I am, you know, like, there <laughs> are no parent parent <laughs> you're like shattering my world right now. Cause I I'm really so sorry. like my kids 10, I'm feeling like I can still control all the things. He's starting to try to test me to prove that I can't. And now you're telling me that he's right. <laughs> yeah. He's really smart. He's right. <laughs> he is really smart. Oh, it's so hard. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It is kind of funny how like this egocentric, like, yeah, maybe it's not about you, mom, like for better or worse. Maybe it's not right for you. better or worse. That's right. That's right. It's a oh tough lesson for all of us. It's so hard. Totally. Can you talk a little bit about this getting involved in the work that you do with prison care? So I'm imagining, and I mean, like you can identify pretty, because you have been so interested in psychology and have this background in the arts. And I can see this like very natural and I was going to say easy fit, simple fit, like direct line into the work that you're doing right now. Right. But I'm imagining also that you weren't like one week out from this event and then being like, and here we go. So can you talk about the evolution of (laughs) the evolution of kind of deciding to get involved in the work that you're doing? And I'm guessing that that also maybe ties in some of the rebuilding of the relationship with your son that's taken place since his incarceration. Yes, that's correct. So it started with my love of research and books, and we could have bumped into each other at the Barnes and Noble (laughs) because I, once I managed to get a shower, you know, like once I managed to start something that was maybe like living, I went to Mm -hmm. research because that's just how I'm wired. That's my personality. And I started reading books and I, I started with autobiography stuff from moms whose kid had killed someone. It seemed like I needed to go to someone who had already been through it and find out how they survived and got to the point that they were able to tell their story. That was hugely helpful because 
I needed, we need that. We need, you know, that's why support groups work. You needed to see a reflection of yourself in a world where there's like, that's not something that you can go. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. So that helped a lot. That kind of started me believing that I was still going to do something with my life after this, that it wasn't just the point where everything stopped and I was going to curl up in a ball and die. And then after that, my son was mentally ill. There were all these symptoms that I was learning more about. He was back in contact with me now. He wrote letters. We had a couple of phone calls. He was still pretty delusional. He had been in an extended period of of psychotic delusion for over a year. And it was all end of days stuff. You know, the world was ending because of things like the internet and like all these horrible things. And God was going to destroy the world. And he and his wife were called to go and hide out in the mountains until it was all over with. And then the human race would begin over again with them. Like it was really, really out there stuff. Wow. And he, he's so and, like, really this. specific, very specific. He spent months like training himself by watching YouTube survivalist videos to figure mm-hmm. out how he thought that by watching these videos, he had learned how to bow hunt. So then he like bought a bow and arrow for when they went into the mountains so that they would be able to find food, find meat. It was just crazy. So I wanted to understand what I could about what was going on with his brain. And I had some friends who were mental health professionals and I talked to them a little bit. And of course, nobody could diagnose him, but I said, what kinds of resources will help me handle his letters and his phone calls? So it really started as taking care of myself because he was ready to accuse me of all kinds of stuff at that point too. You know, I was clearly apostate because I did not realize that God was ending the world. And so I must be, you know, in mortal peril here. And so he was trying to save my soul in the midst of county Mm -hmm. jail. So I needed some protection to understand how do I read his letters? I want to become reconnected to him somehow to try to help him. But this stuff is tearing me up. It's messing with my head, you know? So I got some professional help with that. I was very, very grateful. And then that led me to do some real research on the kind of symptoms that he was manifesting and read a whole lot of books that didn't normalize it, but it gave me, again, context. It gave me some kind of context with which I could process what he was saying. And so I learned what was I going to respond to and what was I just not even going to respond to because that was not something that could even be talked about. It was too delusional, you know, and to start to tug on the threads that were still connected to reality somehow and try to build on those. And then he had, and he finally, the delusionary period broke. And that was about five months, I guess, after his arrest. Can I ask, does that just like happen naturally? Is that like, (laughs) did he start medication? He did not. He refused all medication. He refused all medication. So it was not meds. Um, But the cycle just stopped itself. It did. His circumstances changed dramatically because he was put in isolation. And like, don't even get me started on solitary because it's a whole thing. And I don't believe in it at all, ever. That Mm -hmm. being said, the specifics in his case of the exact situation in which he was put into an isolation cell actually proved to be the thing that broke his delusion. And I can't exactly explain how or why he has some insights into it now that it's way past. But yeah, for most people, it would be the opposite. For For most most people, it would be be a triggering event for sure. That is correct. To be clear, people listening. Yes. I know this from my Barnes and Noble education. Good, good. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I read some of the same books, so yes. Solitary is so bad. Yes. I have episodes on that on my podcast. If you want to hear about solitary. (laughs) But yeah, for him, it was that dramatic change that like shook something inside him. Mm. And 
So yeah. So then he started when he came out of that period and was allowed to connect with us again, was allowed to make some phone calls. He sounded like him, a really weird, exhausted version of him, but it was the first time I had heard him in a couple of years. You could just tell he was still in there somewhere, you know, Mm -hmm. and we started working on symptom management then because he had no mental health resources at all. They would have given him something to just zombie him out. If, you know, if he said, I can't handle the anxiety, they would have given him a Seroquel and he would have just zombied, but he didn't have access to anything else because he didn't have a diagnosis. And so we just started working on really, really, really basic self-care symptom management stuff. And I was coaching him on phone calls that I was paying a ridiculous amount for when he was calling me from the county jail, teaching him how to do things like take a deep breath, teaching him how to do things like ground himself. You know, what are five things you see? What are four things that you hear? What are three things that you smell? What can you touch with your hands and your feet right now? You know, and what taste is in your mouth? Just connect back to reality when he started going off again. So we were doing a lot of best therapy we could come up with just with mom on the other end of the phone, because that's all we had. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about, because I think we just, you mentioned something I think that's really important to acknowledge. So you said that he didn't have a diagnosis. One of the, so he didn't have, therefore he didn't have access to mental health services. One of the things that's really significant is that for many incarcerated people, there is mental health stuff happening and they aren't able to access services. Can you talk about that piece? Because that's a huge missing link in terms of one of the many ways that our system is broken, Um, but I think it would be important to highlight right now. Yeah. And it's a huge misconception. And I held to this misconception until five years ago. So this was all new to me too. I'm throwing no stones at anybody who thinks, oh, wait, I thought that's how it worked when I say this. So when someone who is experiencing a mental illness, crisis, symptom, flare, episode, whatever you want to call it, psychotic episode, when they are taken into the criminal legal system, it's not a deep breath. Okay. Now he's in jail. Now they'll make him take his meds. Mm. now he's gonna that's what he needed he needed that structure so that he can get back on his meds and get regulated that's not how it works i that's wish it's psychiatric was. hospital that's not jail right and we closed <laughs> the vast majority of our psych hospitals at the end of the 80s and we didn't open anything in their place and so now people just go to county jail but the people who work at county jail are not mental health professionals and they do not have the training or the access to resources so there is little to no good mental health care available for people who are incarcerated. And I really wish that was not the case. And it is not a slur in any way to the many people who are working full-time as mental health providers inside prisons and jails, because they are doing the best they can, but their caseloads are like, you cannot even imagine they're seeing a hundred or more people in a day. And all they have time to do is basically say, are you thinking, of hurting yourself or anyone else. And if the person says no, then they say, is there anything else I can do for you? And the people know there's nothing you can do for me. Anything you want? Can I have a counseling Mm -hmm. session? Can I talk to somebody? No, we don't have anybody who has time for that. There's just, there's no money for it. So there's no resources. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the idea that a lot of us have is that it's a safe place to go. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis is unfortunately not true. Can we, and I think that this is part of this kind of the dehumanization um, and you pointed out like when we're like, oh, yay, few, <laughs> like they're, <laughs> now they're there. So yes, not they're only, not in like, my house assume- anymore. Yes. Yeah, so not only are we assuming that like they're getting the support that they need, 
and I'm putting all that in air quotes, but right. they all were also like, now it's not my thing that I don't have yes. to be scared. I don't have to be worried. They're not roaming the streets. And this is all part of this like dehumanization of people who are incarcerated. And this is on such a grand scale. How can we start to shift this? And I want to, one of the things I want to point out that's been really helpful to me. And I had two examples in my head and now I can't really think of one of them, <laughs> but Orange is the New Black was mm-hmm. a show, like fictional show. But as I watched that show, one of the things, and you might have a very different opinion of the show, which you're welcome to share. But one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that like learning about every single person's story was so humanizing. And it like something really clicked in my brain that, oh, like any person that is incarcerated for any reason, like comes with a lifetime of stories and experiences and also strengths and gifts and talents and Mm -hmm. (laughs) humor and brilliance and wisdom and all these things. And yet we live in the society that completely dehumanizes and strips them of anything to make them be people of value. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of it is out of sight, out of mind is a much more comfortable place for us when people behave badly. And I'm not minimizing something like the taking of a life by saying people behaving badly. I'm using that as a catch-all though, because that really yeah. is what makes us uncomfortable. Yeah. So if it's something small or it's something huge and grave and serious, when people don't behave the way that we think they should, we want them not to be our problem. Not my circus, not my monkeys, right? Yeah. We just don't yeah. want to have to take responsibility for that. And the way the system works in the US at this point in time it's easy for us to do that because prisons are literally out of sight. Like the vast Mm -hmm. majority of them are built in the middle of flipping nowhere. So you don't even have to drive past them on the way to the grocery store. You don't have to be reminded. And if you do drive past, it's on a road where the speed limit is 60 miles an hour and there's really nothing else around and you go by in a blink. And to think that there are Mm -hmm. 1800 people who live in that building never crosses your mind. And that doesn't even touch on the hundreds of staff members who are essentially living in that building because they work such long shifts that they're there all the time. So they're literally out of sight, out of mind. And if people have behaved badly, we want them to stop doing whatever it is that they're doing that's going to hurt someone, right? And we have this image that if they're in prison, they will be controlled and then they won't be able to hurt anyone anymore. And that's also only true for those of us who are outside the prison. So it means they won't be hurting us anymore but there are still 1800 people in that building Mm -hmm. and there are still people being hurt all the time. So we're not helping them stop hurting people. We're just putting them where they won't hurt us and they can hurt somebody else instead. Mm -hmm. And you're right. The humanization, the story that each person carries with them is a really big piece of what I believe can make a difference. And it's the direction that we're going with prison care because there are wonderful people who are working to change legislation to create something different in the US. I don't think there's anyone of any political or philosophical flavor who looks at the US prison system and says, wow, this is working so well. There's nothing that needs to be tweaked <laughs> really here. really figured this one out. <laughs> yes. I mean, our recidivism rate is atrocious. It's it's over yeah. 50%. Yeah. And that's a really conservative yeah. estimate. So we know it's not working. And if you're conservative or progressive or an abolitionist or any flavor, you know that something needs to change because it's not working. Yeah. And a lot of it is this idea that if someone is behaving badly and they make bad choices and they hurt people, if we put them away somewhere and give them enough time, they'll become a person who no longer makes bad choices and doesn't hurt people anymore. That just Mm -hmm. time will take care of it. So we tuck them away where they can't hurt us and we wait for them to get better. 
Mm-hmm. And first of all, we know and enough. give them no skills, no tools, no resources, right. <laughs> no right. professional support. And that's the thing. We know too much now. We know too much. Yeah. Back a hundred plus years ago, the Quakers came up with this idea of that's why they're called penitentiaries because it was a place to be penitent and you were put by yourself and no one talked to you and you were supposed to think about what you had done so that you would never want to do it again. And what they found was that people went absolutely nuts. People who had exhibited no signs of crazy before Mm -hmm. became self-harmers and committed suicide. And just because people can't be just put by themselves. So, okay, we don't just put everyone in solitary confinement now, but we do still basically just put them in there until they learn their lesson. It's like the grown-up version of go sit in timeout, you know? And like, you're somehow- totally thinking about timeout where I'm like, (laughs) oh, like we've evolved timeouts with toddlers more than we've evolved how we take care of grown adults. Exactly. We've learned so much about human behavior and about how humans learn and about how our behavior is shaped. And we know now that those things, maybe we thought they made sense 50 years ago, but we see now that's not actually how it works. So we should be letting science inform what we're doing. People think about rehabilitation. And the truth is that our system is It's not set up to really allow for rehabilitation unless an individual incarcerated person chooses for whatever reason, act of God, the love of a good woman, I I don't know what, you know, fairy dust that Tinkerbell comes in and sprinkles on them. But if that individual decides, I don't want this to be my life anymore, and I'm going to learn how to have a different kind of life. If they are not able to make that kind of choice, there is no rehabilitation that's ever going to happen for that because there is nothing thing about the way the system is built and the way their days flow that is going to create opportunities mm-hmm. for development and for rehabilitation. Right. So the question is, how's that working out for us? And right. it's not. And so we need yeah. to become aware of the fact these are these are individual people who are going to need something. If most of us can't lose that last five pounds without a life coach helping us, or we can't decide what we're going to do about making a job change until we've talked to our five wisest friends. Why do we think that someone who was broken enough to do something violent or to do something against the rules of society, why do we think they're going to be able to figure it out all on their own without somebody coaching them through that very difficult process of changing? It just doesn't make sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like 
a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. One of the things that you talked about when we were kind of trading notes back and forth, and I had this, what I realized was kind of hilarious misconception around was prison neighborhoods. And so you mentioned prison neighborhoods. And in my mind, I was like, oh, like neighborhoods where prisons are. And as you just described, like prisons aren't in neighborhoods. And so what you were describing, (laughs) I'm assuming what you were describing, but I'm eager to learn more is within. So specifically, you know, relating to your example, within a community of 1800 people living under this one communal roof, they build their own neighborhoods. And I think this is what helped, what attracted you to some of the work that you're doing with prison care. Can you talk about prison neighborhoods? And then also, I would love to know more about how the work you're doing with prison care ties into those communities. Cool. Yeah. So this is the part where I get really excited and happy because this is vision casting and that's my sweet spot. As I worked with my son and as he began to really respond and he began to heal and his mind began to hold on to reality much more, he would share things that were going on in his day and we were trying to reconnect and I was trying to get a feel for what he was living with. And he would describe these various situations and the emotions that it evoked and the challenges that he was facing. And um, at first, it was me learning what life is like for an incarcerated individual, right? For a prisoner, for an inmate, for whatever you want to call them, an offender. Every state has a different word that you're supposed to use. But what was really funny, Sarah, is that he would describe a situation and I would find myself saying, so what do the COs do, the correctional officers? What do they do when that happens? Like, do people freak out? Is that a reason to call on the radio? Do they like just ignore it? What's the, and he would start explaining their different responses. And it was very gradual, but at some point in a phone call, um, I just said, you know, it's really funny. You guys are wearing different uniforms, but you're dealing with the same challenges. Mm. you may have different goals for how those challenges should be settled and handled, but you're facing a lot of the same stuff. And he was like, you know what? I really are. And a lot of these people are here almost round the clock because there's a massive staffing shortage in the U S. And so most prisons are running in some cases on 50% of the staff that they need. And so people Mm. are regularly working 16 hour shifts. That's very, very common for a corrections officer. So then I started thinking, well, this is like you guys all live on the same block. You don't necessarily like each other very much. You didn't all choose to live together, but you're having to find a way to coexist within this space. Mm -hmm. So communication, it's a big thing, right? If you're all having to be around each other for this many hours every day, 
if the communication has an incredibly hostile tone, what is that doing to everybody's mental health? Not just you guys who are getting locked in every night at count, but how about the staffers who are also having to go home to their families late at night after having been in this horribly toxic culture and environment all day long? You know, this is hurting everybody. And this really resonated with him. And a couple, and by this point, COVID had locked the facility down for a long time. And so because I had begun to sort of get to know, air quotes again, but get to know some of of the other inmates in his facility, I was really concerned for them and how they were dealing with being locked down for so long, you know, 23 hours a day or more. And so I pulled a few friends around and some of these guys that I had been writing letters to, um, getting to know them a a little bit, just, uh, you know, my son and he, I've heard about you and he said it was okay for me to write to you. And so a bunch of us started writing letters to people just because COVID messed with all of us, right? I mean, we were mm-hmm. on what we called lockdown on the outside for this very brief period of time. And we were all losing it because it was really scary. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what is it yeah. like to be literally locked down and just as scared? So it opened up this beginning of relationships and conversation. And he began having conversations with a small group of friends and it's now spread and spread about this whole shared challenges, no matter which uniform we're wearing. We are all occupying the same space. We have to coexist. And what makes things better for us in our uniform doesn't necessarily have to cost them something just because they're wearing the other uniform. Everything is us versus them in a prison, but maybe it doesn't actually have to be that way. Like there are shared goals. For example, everybody in a prison wants to be safe. No one wants to get beat up. No one wants to be extorted or taken advantage of, right? They may want to be the one doing the beating up or doing the extorting. There are plenty of knuckleheads who want to behave badly, but no one wants to be victimized, right? That's a shared goal, whether you are getting paid for your time in the prison or whether you are sentenced to live there. Mm -hmm. And if there are things that can humanize the other, the person in the other uniform, if you can look at them and recognize, okay, I don't like what they're saying right now. I don't like what they're doing right now but that's still a person. And that's a person who doesn't want to get jumped. And I know what that feels like. And actually they look scared right now. I wonder if they're feeling a tension in the air that's making them wonder if they're going to get jumped. Now, suddenly you can't just dismiss that person, right? Because you've just found a common humanity, a shared humanity with them. So that was the idea of prison neighborhoods. We started recognizing that there there are these people who have to live right next door to each other, who have to share resources and be in close proximity. And it is a very uneasy neighborhood. But if the sewer backs up in the neighborhood, everybody stinks, right? And if the sewer Mm -hmm. gets fixed, everybody can get cleaned up again. So there are things that can be done that are not a zero-sum game, but that could benefit everybody in the neighborhood, could improve the safety, could improve the mental health of everyone in the neighborhood. And then it becomes in the best interest of an inmate to speak with some respect to the corrections officers, even if they don't particularly like them, because that's going to lower the CO's stress level, which is going to make them less likely to be unfair back to the inmates. You know, it breaks that cycle of us versus them. And everything is me trying to win while you lose. And it puts right. it to a place where we do have some shared goals. Let's try to make this less toxic for everybody. That was a lot. You talk Sorry, about- I get excited. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, this is like so interesting. What does it look like when prison care, like, can you talk about kind of what it looks like in practicality and like what the work actually looks like? I'm so 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 fascinating. So don't apologize. (laughs) (laughs) 
so there are lots of mm-hmm. prison advocacy groups and there are lobbying groups that are trying to get laws changed and there are prison ministries that are doing wonderful work. They're all doing a great thing. Prison care is doing something that's slightly different and it's because of this neighborhood model. So what we do at prison care is we provide for free um, tools in the form of printed articles and curriculum and video and um, the prison care podcast, things that help a person or a small group of people choose to adopt a prison facility. Sounds really weird, but in the very first prison care compassion team, which was me all by myself at first, and then a little bit later, it was me and some of my friends, right? (laughs) Exactly. And I said, okay, well, I care about where my son lives because that's where my son lives. And it's where my son is trying to get better and trying to get his life figured out. And so what could I do that would be caring for first caring about right? First, you got to care about something before you can actually care for it. So with prison care, we're saying first, just start by caring about what's going on in prisons and learn. Learn how many misconceptions you might actually have, right? Learn what a CO's day is typically like. Learn what their salary is, because you will be surprised at how little these people are being paid for working in a really dangerous environment, right? So learn because you care about what's going on and then pick a prison to care for, and adopt that prison and start by connecting as a pen pal encourager. This is different from just being a random chatty pen pal, but it's choosing to be a voice of encouragement, a voice of challenge, a voice of coaching, mentoring, cheerleading, but it's saying, I'm going to write to someone who is incarcerated who would like a pen pal, but every letter I send to them, I'm going to be thinking, what can I be doing to help this person choose? rehabilitation in their own life? What can I be doing to cheer for them when they reach a small goal, right? What can I do to um, ask them important questions when they're maybe talking kind of stupid and they're like, yeah, that's not going to end well. So let me ask you a good question. Have you thought about this? You know, the purpose of the pen pal relationships is actual relationship. And it's to be a voice of a brother, a sister, a friend, a teammate, a colleague, something who wants to see you do well. And so I want to do what I can to encourage that. So it starts with that. And then the other side of that, and this is why it works really well because it's nonpartisan. There's some people who say that sounds like hug a thug. That sounds like progressive Mm -hmm. nonsense, bleeding heart, liberal, whatever, you know, and I say, if you do the crime, you should do the time. That's cool. You should still adopt a prison and you should focus on staff appreciation events because correction staff are the forgotten and ignored branch of law enforcement. And for us on the outside, something bad happens and the police come and we say, oh, I'm so glad that there was someone here to help stop this violent situation or whatever. And then the police take them into the criminal legal system and we watch on the news as that trial is completed and the jury determines guilt or innocence and there's a conviction and uh, the person is sentenced by the judge. And that's the end of the story for us. It goes off the news. We don't think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what facility Mm -hmm. they got placed in because nobody cares. It's the end of the story. Right. Right. But for correction staff, that's the beginning of the story. And they are now the branch of law enforcement that has to provide for custody, control and care for that human being for as many years as they were just sentenced. That is a huge responsibility. And when is the last time you saw a float in a parade? You know, there's there goes the firefighters float. Yay, firefighters. There goes the police float. Yay. Mm -hmm. There goes the corrections officers float. What? It's not a thing. So you can start doing things to show appreciation for a very, um, just a forgotten and overlooked branch of public service. Yeah. You shared a statistic with me that 
on average, three correction officers die by suicide in the United States every week. Every week. That is a massive number. I can't think of, I would love to see statistics on, in terms of how this compares to like any other professional field. And also the fields that if this was happening in, there would be like such an outcry for, you know, if this was happening. Yes. If this was happening among other professions that. Well, it's funny. There's a sense in which it is around their work. It's beginning to happen among teachers. We're beginning to pretty much nonpartisan look at teachers. I was thinking teachers and nurses. Like Yes, yes. Nurses. Another great example where we're looking, especially post-COVID, we're saying, this is not sustainable. We cannot expect people to go into this profession and be frightened at work and be overworked so much and, you know, be under-resourced and all of that. But we see schools all the time and we see hospitals all the time. And we see people wearing t-shirts that say hug a nurse and, you know, there's a visibility there and corrections staff are pretty much invisible. Mental health is a huge problem among corrections staff. And there's an organization called Desert Waters, desertwaters.com.org. I forget, but they are um, out of Colorado. They're doing some incredible cutting edge work in providing mental health care for corrections staff. Mm -hmm. And they're beginning to kind of break the silence. There's also a group called One Voice United that is corrections staff and unions coming together to begin holding events where they share about the suicide rate, about the alcoholism rate, about the divorce rate, and about the shortened life expectancy, because corrections officers on average live much shorter lives than people who are not in that field. And it's because the job is so hard on them physically mm-hmm. and mentally, you know, the stress is so bad for them. Mm-hmm. So they're beginning to try to bring this to awareness. And that's part of what prison care is committed to do is to bring this out of the forgotten and put it in front of us because we have as a society told these people, they have to do this. At this point, we have all these prisons. We have all these incarcerated people. Somebody has to provide for their custody, care, and control. We say, I don't want it to be me, but somebody has got to do it. So if as a society, we have said someone has to do it, then we have to provide for that person who is doing it. We cannot Mm -hmm. expect them to give up a decade or more of their life expectancy because that's how high their blood pressure is going to be. And they're going to have a stroke. Yeah. And that's what's happening. You know, statistically, it's just true. Right. So my first career working in a psychiatric hospital, I remember we would work with kids for, they were typically in the hospital for like up to three weeks at a time. And I remember there would be times where we would get a certain mix of kids and like every day I would go in and I'd be like, oh, like, uh, I know this kid's discharge is coming up. So like, okay, like you just have to get through like X amount of days and then the dynamics is going to change because one of the yeah. kids will go or like, we'll get a new kid in. So like there was something would shift. And so you're like, okay, like maximum is like 21 days. It's going to be real hard, (laughs) but (laughs) you like, you had that finish line, a teacher, and this is a much longer timeline, but a teacher is like, okay, like nine months. And now I know nine months compared to 21 days is like massive, but still you're like nine months. Like next year I get to start fresh. When you're looking at a prison community, you're looking at Yes, things can change, but you're looking at these sentences that are years, if not decades. So when you're going to work into this terrifying, overwhelming, toxic, unsafe, you know, really uh, challenging work environment, you're, it's not like I just have to get through 21 days or in nine months, I get a whole new crew or like, it's like, oh, this is like, it can be like this for an 
indefinite amount of time. And so yeah. it's just that toll is yeah. huge. Yeah. It's funny. We I talked recently, my community director and I talked recently with a career long correctional officer and she said, oh yeah, we know, we know within a couple of weeks, we can tell this person's either going to last less than three months or this is going to be oh. their career the rest of their life. But she's yeah. like, there's no in between. There's no in between. Yeah. You either yeah. spend a little time here and go, nope, can't do this. And you leave, or you say, for whatever reason, I can do this and I'll just do it because nobody else will. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I could ask you 1 million more questions, but I'm going to spend your time. Yes. Sabrina, <laughs> this has been so amazing. What can people do if they want to get involved with prison care? If they're like, oh, this is really intriguing. Maybe I want to adopt a prison. Maybe I want to support a prison neighborhood in some way, whether it's on the prisoner side or on the um, correction officer side, what can people do? So it really comes back to what I said. You got to care about prisons before you can care for a prison. So you just got to learn, come to prisoncare.org. That's the easiest place to start. There's all kinds of information there. The prison care podcast is available on all the major, you know, Apple podcasts and Spotify and all the things. And we have a weekly episode on Mondays where we explore all different topics around this. Begin to create proximity for yourself. Put yourself Mm -hmm. close to the prison culture and learn about it. And as you learn about it, you're going to find certain things that grab you. Um, You're going to hear about an art exchange and you're going to go, Ooh, I would never be a pen pal, but art exchange. That's interesting. I'm a watercolor artist. I would be really interested to find out what art and healing and rehabilitation. And how could I support an incarcerated artist in his journey to try to find himself through art? You know, something will grab you. There's so many creative ideas. And so by getting connected through the website and by listening to the podcast, you're going to, you're going to hear something that's going to grab you. Thank you. We will link that up in the show notes. Any other links? So we'll link up the prisoncare.org, the podcast. We have all your social here. So people can go to shamelessmom.com, click on the episode with Sabrina Justison. Everything will be right there for people to click right through the links. Anything else you want us to put in the resources? And you can also email me after, but anything you want to shout out? I don't think so. No, that's the really mainly the website is the big thing. Everything else comes from there. So, Okay. Final question. How are you currently showing up as a shameless mom? I am asking for help. I am not comfortable with asking for help. I just want to go and research it, right? I'm going to go to Barnes and Noble. I want to research it and then I'll figure out a way to do it. But prison care has grown to the point that I can't do this anymore or it will just stay Sabrina sized, which is very small. And there are people who need it. And so it can't stay Sabrina sized. So I'm having to be humble enough to, I had nachos with a friend yesterday who is going to help me do like my whole big strategy of chicken and egg, you know, what comes first and what will come out of that. And where should I be prioritizing? Because she has a bunch of background and nonprofit work and I don't. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just stuff like that. I'm having to ask wiser people. Did you do some vision casting? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Oh my goodness. So good. I so appreciate that you're recognizing that it would be, while it might be safe for you to keep it small, it would be a disservice to the people who really need this work. This is really significant, critical work. And it's work that is so like overdue and overdeserved for so many people. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing, Sabrina. This is incredible. Thank you for- Oh my gosh. And yeah, thank you for everything that you brought to this conversation with such transparency and thoughtfulness. I really, really appreciate the work you're doing and please come back. If there's other things you want to dig into um, in a follow-up conversation, I would love to keep this conversation going. 
Oh, I would love that. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for caring about prisons. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be Shameless Mom of the Week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.